Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Hey there, I'm Jonathan McVeary, communication strategist at the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications. I spoke with Dr. Stephanie Madden, Assistant Professor of Advertising and Public Relations at the Belisario College. Our discussion is a part of a collection of interviews with Belisario College faculty, where I talk to them about their research and how it applies to today's media landscape. Dr. Madden's passion can be seen in her research interest. She studies advocacy and social justice issues and how they intersect with crisis communication public safety, and social media. She is leading two major projects for the Arthur W. Page Center, a research center housed in the Belisario College. The projects involve scholars from around the world, and the topics are ethics of care and activism. In this interview, we talk about a recent publication authored by Dr. Madden and her collaborators, Dr. Kate Guastafaro of the Department of Human Development and Family Studies, and Drs. Chris Skirka and Jessica Myrick, faculty members at the Belisario College. The study was published in the Howard Journal of Communication, entitled, When Home is Not Safe, Media Coverage and Issue Salience of Child Maltreatment During the COVID-19 Pandemic. We also discussed the power of interdisciplinary work and how collaborations help remove the limitations of research. Thanks for being here, uh, Stephanie, appreciate it. And you know, just to open up, this is a podcast for uh, Penn State Belisario College alumni. So can you introduce yourself, a little bit about your background, and uh, very generally your research interests? Sure. Um, so my name is uh, Stephanie Madden, and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Advertising and Public Relations. So I earned my PhD from the University of Maryland in 2016, um, and my area of research and focus broadly is under the umbrella of public relations, but I think I take a little bit of a different spin on it than, than a lot of other public relations researchers um, because a lot of my work is, is focused on how organizations can help reduce harm towards people, um, showing a maximum amount of care, and also working to uncover and change institutional abuses of power, um, and also focusing on prevention as well, which I think really ties into the work that I've done related to sexual assault and sexual abuse. So my dissertation research was on how, how colleges um, and universities can use strategic communication to proactively combat sexual assault on college campuses rather than simply seeing public relations as a damage control or image repair function rather than sort of sweeping it under the rug or how can we, you know, make the institution seem less culpable in this? How can we work to use strategic communication to change the culture around these issues? Um, and that, that's been a driving focus, I think, of a lot of my work recently. Um, I've done work, too, on how we can reframe the idea of crises, too, to think about victims um, and potentially survivor-centered work as well. Um, my mo one of my most recent publications has actually been on the Larry Nasser scandal and looking at the sort of multiple organizations involved in that and how we need to approach it from an ethic of care um, 
and think about how, rather than thinking about it as a single organization, like following a sort of textbook response of how to respond to crises, how can we sort of examine the system and think about how to prevent these types of things from happening rather than responding reactively to them? So that's been a big focus of what I, I've been doing recently. I'm very interested in, in, again, how we can use public relations and strategic communication to address and um, social justice issues. And again, um, how we can use it to, to minimize and reduce harm rather than how can we use it to control reputations. Can you give me an example of something that you've learned um, that you know a university could use in terms of using public relations in that way? I think a lot of what I've been doing recently too has really been focused on sort of these internal communications and public relations is about these relationships. So, you know, a press release is only going to go so far in communicating anything to people. It's really what these individual relationships are um, at an internal level, thinking about employee relationships, how do people feel cared for. Um, and, you know, beyond sexual assault on college campuses, I think COVID-19 is really revealing that to people a lot, the ways that they may or may not feel valued or be valued in a workplace. And, you know, like I said, uh, if we only think about public relations from a very external communication role, um, that's going to be very limited. And I think we're going to see a lot, a lot more focus, too, on this idea of organizational listening and employee engagement from this perspective of care, which, again, has been very related to, to the turn my um, work has taken in the past years, um, more on this internal focus and how do we communicate that, help people feel valued. Um, and, you know, I take that into the classroom, too, outside of research. It's just sort of something that I take into all interactions I have in academic spaces, and I hope my research reflects that as well. Awesome. Um, and this might be a dangerous question, but um, in terms of your path to Penn State, who obviously has its own history with crises and, you know, maltreatment, child maltreatment. Um, so, you know, can you discuss your path to Belisario College? And, you know, honestly, did that have anything to do with it? So I, like uh, I mentioned previously, I graduated um, with my PhD from the University of Maryland. And so my first academic position was as tenure track faculty at the University of Memphis. Um, so actually, I really loved Memphis. I loved my time at Memphis and I fell in love with the city. Um, I really miss good barbecue. Um, but the a challenge, too, is um, my husband is also an academic. We actually met during our PhD program. So we were on the job market at the same time. We both were ended up in Memphis, um, but I had the more permanent position. He had the more year to year. So about two years into our time at Memphis, um, two tenure track positions opened up at Penn State, um, one in Belisario and one in the um, Department of Communication, Arts and Sciences. So we're really fortunate to have both uh, landed those tenure track positions at Penn State, which can be a really a challenge for, for couples who are both academics and sort of pursuing this career. So we feel really fortunate to have ended up at Penn State. But as you mentioned before, too, I, I think there are opportunities for really addressing the type of work that I'm interested here, understanding the institutional legacy of Penn State, how we can make this better. And honestly, that's a big, big reason I was able to have this interdisciplinary partnership to start this work on child maltreatment and this, um, yeah, this amazing collaboration between Belisario and the 
um, Safe and Healthy Communities Initiative uh, housed within the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network. So it's been great that, again, my work um, and, you know, it was really my bio on the Belisario website that alerted um, Dr. Guastafaro to the work that I do and resulted in this partnership. So she uh, reached out to you out of the blue in a way? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a fun story. Um, so, yeah, Dr. Guastafaro actually had just cold emailed me. I think it was um, January. It may have been January 2020. It was really right before everything changed. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, we get so many emails and like solicitations as academics that I think for a while I had sort of put it to the side. I was like, okay, I don't do what do I need to do with this? Um, but then I saw that she had actually tweeted out uh, to Dr. Uh, Skirka and Dr. Myrick and our college to sort of see if there were partnership opportunities there as well. And so I responded to the email and all four of us got together. I think, I think it was February 14th. I remember that because we all, <laughs> we all like really got along well. So I remembered it was Valentine's day, um, an automatic love connection, I guess. Um, but we, we all just gelled. We're all, um, we, we joke because we're all Midwestern millennial, uh, you know, researchers and professors. So we're all transplants from the Midwest into Pennsylvania. Um, and we just got along really well. And, you know, it was just sort of a brainstorming meeting to see what possibilities might exist um, in sort of collaborations or any help that we could provide um, with the work that she's doing, um, a large part of it is to increase the number of people taking the Stewards of Children training through Darkness to Light, which is very focused on um, child sexual abuse prevention. So we ended up, um, Dr. Skirka, Dr. Myrick and I, uh, attending a meeting with some of her community coordinators to offer some insights that we had um, from both a public relations perspective and also a, like a media effects messaging perspective on ways or things they could consider in their messaging approaches to get people in their communities to take these trainings. Um, so we started first with sort of the real impact meeting of the people that are doing this work on the ground and how we could use our just general research knowledge um, to help with the amazing work that they're doing. And then it transitioned into the research partnership just through um, seeing a call for uh, it was a special issue in the Howard Journal of Communications on media and communication in COVID-19. So I just initially had the idea, like, this could be a great opportunity within, within communication. Um, child maltreatment and child sexual abuse haven't really been studied that much. There has certainly been stuff in crisis communication. Um, you know, institutions like Penn State and others ha have been studied. Um, from a crisis communication perspective, but there really wasn't a lot on sort of prevention for, for these types of issues or how we can understand it in those ways. So we put together an abstract, um, you know, sometime in spring 2020, and our idea was accepted, like the guest editors liked it, so we proceeded with, with the full research to really understand how COVID-19 messaging and this idea of child maltreatment, particularly as students as just children were no longer in person classrooms, like what the messaging was around that because most reports of child abuse and child maltreatment come from school employees and teachers. So a lot of the concern was that 
um, the numbers of reports were going to go down, which does not mean that incidents are going down. It's just that there's fewer eyes and fewer adults to report anything suspicious. So that was the initial idea. Um, and like I said, we, we were fortunate that the Howard Journal of Communications and the guest editors liked the idea. And I think we're really pleased with, with how the study turned out and some of the insights we can offer. Awesome. Yeah, I, was, I thought some of the results were very interesting in terms of uh, the differences between what's on social media, uh, PSAs, and actual news coverage are the three areas there. Um, and based on what my understanding of it, and you know, please elaborate or expand, uh, people recalled seeing the information about this uh, risk of child maltreatment at home um, on social media, um, more so often, more more often than the news media that might be covering it in an article or a piece on the news. Um, so, can you maybe expand on that and maybe share your thoughts on why something like that might happen? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, with any sort of survey research, the the way we ask the questions and our insights, some of this is is just an interpretation of the data. Um, but something that we thought of, like a reason that that might be, is that um, social media posts, and in general, it may have been somebody sharing a news article and then maybe adding a, a personal comment or insight to that. Um, in terms of recalling that, they may have just have had more um, salience to people if it had come from somebody they knew, like they had personal commentary, maybe something stuck in their memory of, oh, I remember, you know, this person's really passionate about this issue or, oh, you know, my, my teacher friend or whomever may have posted something. So just in terms of being able to recall the messages or, or knowing that they've seen something about it, um, one interpretation that we had of that finding was just that knowing somebody and having that personal connection in that way that you do on, have on social media versus, you know, reading a story um, in a newspaper or maybe seeing something on TV isn't going to have that sort of salience to you and that connection that you're able to recall it on, you know, something like a survey later on. Sure, absolutely. And I was wondering if you were to sit down with, uh, you know, a table of communicators from child advocacy groups, um, what would you tell them based on these results? Yeah, you know, I think, and something too we noticed, and the benefit of the mixed methods research that we did was that we were able to get some qualitative data and findings where people did input some comments into the survey where we could get some insights into these results from the people that were taking it, in addition to the more qualitative analysis we did of the news coverage. Um, and something that I really noticed, um, I'm a qualitative researcher, so those were the parts that I, I was most heavily involved in, is that a lot of the news articles um, didn't necessarily give insights into the, the signs of child maltreatment or maybe what even to do if it was suspected, like some of them did. Um, but I think that clear connection, and I think why we saw PSA so salient too, is that it had a clear um, action message to it. Like if you suspect this in Pennsylvania, you call child line in other states as well. You call a, call like child protective services, um, which, you know, that messaging may be more, uh, people may remember that in different contexts than others. Um, but I, I was finding that with these controlled messages, organizations could do a job, better job of kind of explaining what to look for. Um, because as I've been doing this work and I've learned so much from the partnership with Dr. Guastafero that most of child maltreatment 
is related to neglect. And I think a lot of what we see covered in the news stories and what a lot of people recalled in these surveys and other messages are some of the more salacious or like egregious instances of child abuse when a lot of it is neglect, which people may not know what that might look like. We sort of you know, the idea, too, of organizations just reiterating that this is a public health issue, like child maltreatment is a public health issue. And I think that's what we were really interested in combining it with COVID-19, this idea. These are both public health issues. How is this communicated about um, what are the long-term consequences of both and how can communities see it as their collective responsibility rather than a, oh, I'm just going to mind my own business or that, you know, that's, that's not my concern or I'm not a hundred percent sure something's going on. So I shouldn't intervene. Um, how can we empower people again to, to know that it's not their job to investigate. Like if you're suspicious of something, you can call people who are trained professionals and know what to look for. But if you don't know of any of this sort of other signs of, of child maltreatment issues, you're not going to be as empowered to help make that change in your community. So I think organizations really have an opportunity to tie that into their local community messages. I think if we think about this too abstractly, it's easy to be like, oh, I don't know anybody that's happening to, or, you know, that doesn't happen here. Um, but we know it does, like it happens in, in all communities. Um, and how can we have extra eyes and how can we offer extra protection to to some of the most vulnerable in our society and that's sort of through this empowerment and clear messaging about what to look for and what to do in terms of like if i'm an alumni coming into this you know listening to this interview um, in terms of in terms of the content analysis uh what are the things you are collecting looking at and you know what do you do with them yeah, so for this study, I believe that we we approached it pretty open-ended. So just kind of walking through the basic process, there's actually this nice um, software called InVivo that a lot of qualitative researchers use, which is really just to help organize this large amount of data that we have. Um, so I downloaded um, articles um, using specific search terms, uh, you know, like COVID-19 and child maltreatment. Um, download them from a database of news articles, um, which has its limitations in terms of like what's included or not, but I think offers at least a nice sample of the type of news coverage occurring around this time. Um, we, I uploaded that into the software just so it was all in one place, and it really involves just this sort of line-by-line -line analysis of looking to see are there any patterns in the messaging? It's a lot of looking for patterns, I'd say, of, okay, I've noticed that these articles talk a lot about this. Um, you know, one of the findings from our study was that um, child maltreatment, a lot of it was being discussed as child abuse and domestic violence kind of being grouped together. So that was one thing that we really noticed kind of a pattern in the data from this. So it, it involves a lot of reading and rereading, like making notes, having conversations with the research team too, to kind of check interpretations. You know, it is subjective, like, well, that's why I love qualitative research. Like there is a subjectivity to it, um, but it's still rigorous and it's still empirical in terms of looking to see what you can find. Um, and it's a little bit different than like a, a quantitative content analysis where we may have been looking for like, okay, there were 
you know, we wanted to count more specifically things happening. We were more interested in sort of the general themes that we saw in these types of messages. And so that's the sort of qualitative content analysis that we did. Gotcha. Awesome. And in terms of, I know it's been a few years and it's always kind of an important topic, but in terms of interdisciplinary research, um, and you talked a lot about how you guys got together and it was super interesting. Um, why for a topic and a research like this, why is interdisciplinary research important and kind of what do you get that you wouldn't get in your own little area? Yeah. So I think one thing initially is just even thinking about looking at this topic. Like I said, I, I've done a lot of research into sexual assault, but not at the sort of child maltreatment level. Um, so I think one thing is just opening us up to, to different issues. Um, so like I mentioned, this is not an issue that's been covered a lot in um, like advertising or public relations or even sort of media effects research. So I think it really opens up a potential for a lot of new important communication research on this topic. Um, and again, combining that with the large amount of existing research on child maltreatment and child sexual abuse um, that Dr. Guastafaro and people with that as their kind of primary research area have been doing. So it just exposes you to a number of um, different research outlets, a number of different research topic and possibilities. Um, and even within our own college, like even though Dr. Skirka and Dr. Myrick and I are all communication researchers broadly, we do research very differently, both in terms of methods. Like I, like I mentioned, I'm a qualitative researcher, but they're both amazing like quantitative researchers, which means that they're gonna be doing a lot more with surveys or experiments and just measuring things in different ways. So we were able to really combine all of our different expertise, um, like methodologically and the types of issues that we're interested in. Like um, Dr. Myrick does a lot with emotions and communication, which was very important for a topic like child maltreatment. Um, we are also able to combine sort of like people's um, feelings of efficacy. Like, do they feel like they could make a difference on this topic? Do they feel equipped to make a change? So we were able to use like the existing sort of tools that all of us had in terms of like survey questions and how to address this topic to, I think, like I, like I mentioned, do something really interesting in this collaboration. So I think all re like research is enriched by this mixed methods approach to sort of take the strengths of all these different messages, me uh, methods, and um, that's something too. Like all all research has its limitations, but this is able to capitalize on all the different strengths of messages, methods, uh, <laughs> methods, and. Um, think through through all of that. So I'm just excited again for us to, to be looking more at this issue um, within communication and again, provide the insights that we have from communication to help with this important prevention work that's occurring um, at Penn State and through the work of Dr. Guastafaro. One thing that kind of came to mind was how you're a part of a group of young researchers that joined the Belisario College within the last four years, I think. Um, and a few more have come since then, obviously. Um, and in my opinion, you guys are like killing it. So how does it feel to work in an uh, environment like that? Like, uh, do you have anything to share about your, not only your collaborators, but your uh, other researchers in the department? Um, and after that, you know, people at Penn State in general. Well, I appreciate you say, saying that we're killing it. Um, I, you know, I think we, 
we are just, you know, it is a nice energy. And, I, you know, I think in Belisara, we are very supported with our research and, um, you know, through funding, through um, a lot of um, openness, just in terms of the types of topics that we explore. Um, so I think that's been really helpful. It's It's been amazing, too. Um, Dr. Myrick is just incredible and it's been great too to to work with somebody um that's it's just been so successful um in, in academia and media effects and research um to be able to collaborate again I don't know that's something I went into my job thinking I'd be able to do again like as a qualitative researcher in public relations like I, I think it's been really neat to find these opportunities to connect and bring each other's strengths into projects rather than any of us feeling like we have to change who we are as researchers and the topics that we're interested in. Um, it's also been great too. I've worked with um, Dr. Skirka on a few projects now. And again, uh, I've worked on an experiment with him. I've been able to expand sort of my own research abilities too. And I think um, in other ways too, like looking at qualitative research and sort of the interpretations that I'm able to bring into projects just really enrich us all. Like, although we all have PhDs and have been trained, um, being a researcher is a lifelong process. None of us, you know, it's never finite in terms of your skills or abilities. Um, we're all continually improving as researchers. So I think it's been really great to have people who are, you know, ahead of me in research to collaborate with, to learn from, um, you know, and, and also people that, maybe even got their PhDs after me, but in a completely different sort of area, and I'm able to learn from them as well. So it's just a really nice energy. Um, and I'm really excited too for a number of the new hires that we have as well to, to I think, really continue um, with the creativity and this sort of, like, like we mentioned before, a lot of opportunities for interdisciplinary research across Penn State. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.